Two and a Half Admins, Episode 8. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a couple of things to plug. Uh, these FreeBSD Friday streams. Yeah, uh, so each Friday for the next while anyway, uh, there'll be a live stream with some uh, intro to FreeBSD content. I think uh, there was a... Last week's uh, was just an intro. Uh, the one coming up this week is an install fest. Uh, and then I think there's uh, a more in-depth lecture coming uh, the week after that and a whole series of different things planned. Uh, so if you are interested in FreeBSD and want to get started, uh, the FreeBSD Friday streams are a nice way to relax on a Friday and, and learn about BSD. Are we going to see you on there at all? Uh, probably eventually. Okay, cool. So also, I want to plug my services. If you want your podcast to sound good or better, then get in touch with me at joeres.com, J-O-E-R-E-S-S.com. There's various ways to get in touch with me there. Whether it's pre-production, recording, or post-production, I can make your podcast sound better. So let's do some news stories. A couple of them you wrote, Jim. The first one about these new Western Digital drives, which are E-A-M-R, and they're in 18 and 20 terabyte variants. Yeah, and uh, the 18 terabyte variant is not SMR, and the 20 terabyte variant is, but it's host managed. So, um, you know, the SMR drives that have really got everybody up in arms are all drive managed, and it's very important to draw the distinction between the two. A drive managed SMR disk will just plug into your machine, and if you don't hit it with a workload that it can't handle, you may not realize what you've done until all of a sudden it falls off a cliff. Now, host managed SMR just flat won't work when you plug it in unless you're actually running, you know, specialty drivers to to manage the thing on the system, which on Linux, that would be DM zone D. Um, I have no idea, honestly, how you mess with those things in Windows. Yeah, like uh, generally with a host managed drive, if you try to write to an offset that isn't just appending to an existing zone, it's just like, no, you can't do that. Uh, just like, you know, if you try to write 512 bytes to a, a 4K native drive that doesn't do 512 byte sector emulation, it just says that's an invalid size. And so that's interesting. Um, I'm guessing they only managed to uh, get to 20 terabytes by doing SMR. And basically, it's the same drive as 18 terabyte, just using SMR to stretch out that extra couple of uh, terabytes. The interesting thing in here is to see them going with the energy-assisted recording rather than it seemed like Western Digital was going to go with the uh, microwave-assisted. They haven't given up on Mammer yet. They, they're they still working with that, and they may still release drives that are using it. I, I think the issue here is just that the EAMR is so much less exotic that, you know, when they found out that using that technology was enough to get the density, it was easy to get a product to market that way. Well, yeah, because I think the biggest concern with both Mammer and Hammer was the fact that they generally needed to use a different material for the disk platter itself that would handle being, being heated up and cooled down constantly. Uh, and as soon as you start changing something fundamental about that drive, you ran the risk that, you know, two years into their service life, something unpredictable was going to happen. Yeah, it's it's not just that the platter had to be, you know, capable of withstanding being heated up and cooling down. I, I don't think that's even the primary issue. The thing is, you you change the media to something that is considerably more magnetically coercive, meaning it's harder to change the state on it. Uh, that's what actually allows you to get the greater density. The problem is that your right head it now is not strong enough to overcome that magnetic coercivity. And the, the laser or the microwave is what temporarily changes that property on just the area you're writing to at that moment. So that's 
everything that you got to do to make that work. Now with the, um, with the, with the Yammer, which is just how I'm going to pronounce that EAMR thing with Yammer, it's a lot simpler. Um, now you've just got a bias current that's running on the main coil, the, the main pole of the right head, as well as the voice coil that runs on the smaller voice head. Now this, this steady bias current allows the, the, the field to come off of the voice coil. It ramps up a lot more quickly and accurately so that you can affect a smaller area of the exact same platter than you would otherwise be able to. But you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's a lot less exotic, but if you're the right kind of engineering nerd, that makes it really cool. Cause it's like, Hey, look at this simple thing that we did to, you know, get a lot more performance than we had to without doing all this crazy, weird overboard stuff. Well, that was my next question. How does the performance compare with the conventional magnetic drives? Well, so according to Western Digital, there's no, there's no performance impact whatsoever. Um, I'm working with them as we speak, trying to make sure that I can get one of those discs as quickly as possible, you know, get my own grubby hands on it and find out, Hey, is that actually the case or not? I, I don't have any reason to disbelieve them. You know, it's just, it's literally not my day job to just blindly believe what the vendor says. Yeah. But yeah. In general, you know, we've not seen that much change in, in spinning disc performance in a long time. It's just been, you have a head that can do so many IOPS and we pack the data closer together, which has given us faster uh, throughputs, but that's about it. Uh, and so, yeah, I wouldn't expect to see much in the way of performance difference from this. We could actually see, you know, some moderate performance improvements compared to some disks because there are some other innovations in those 18 and 20 terabyte disks. Uh, they are supposedly the first disks to make it to market with uh, with nine platters, and they also are the first ones to have a triple stage actuator rather than dual, which basically is like, you know, look at your finger, uh, you know, you've you've got three places your finger bends, right? Well, that, it's the same thing with uh, Western Digital's actuators in these large drives. Much like your finger, the, the grossest movements come from the closest part to your hand. Now, on the disc, of course, that's going to be the closest to the outside of the disc. So the, the closer you get to the interior of the disc, the finer the motion that you've got of the actuator at that stage. So basically, you can make a really rapid sweeping motion across the disc rapidly, and you can fine-tune to exactly where you want to be with the little joints further in. Now, whether that's really going to translate to an enormous performance difference or not, I don't know. We'll find out, but hopefully something. It'd be really interesting if we see uh, a, a change in IOPS compared to other drives because, you know, basically IOPS on spinning discs have not really changed at all in a long time. And it's resulted in the IOPS per terabyte going down because the terabytes keep going up and the IOPS don't. Uh, and that's why I was really interested in Seagate's uh, multi-actuator drives. But so far, the only one they produced basically connects to a SAS port and appears as two separate drives. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's one drive where one uh, actuator reads half the disk and one actuator reads the other. And it just shows up as, as if it was, you know, it basically uses SAS, uh, uh, SAS multiporting, but one drive on each of the two ports. It's, it's an old school, uh, single-sided floppy drive again. You need to just pull the platter out, flip it over, put it back in. Hey. <laughs> but, well, in this case, you can use both at the same time. So yeah. if you don't mirror them together, but if you use two of them and mirror the halves together, uh, suddenly you have spinning disks that you can do 450 to 500 IOPS, uh, which is a nice improvement. But there's so many things that are weird about it that it, it hurts the usability bit. Or you just use merger FS off the two actuators so that you have like one drive again. 
seems kind of weird they didn't do something similar to that in the firmware. Well, well, because uh, uh, they looked at, you know, we could just, if we did like every other sector or something, then the problem with that is uh, you're not going to get any better random performance because you're going to have to move the other, you know, they're going to have to almost track together. And if you do something like zones, like you say one megabyte or 32 megabytes or 256 megabyte uh, zones are all on one and then you alternate to the other, you're still end up with, if you're trying to read a file that's, you know, you wrote out sequentially, it's going to require both heads to be in the same place and you're not really getting the advantage. And, you know, if you look at a typical file system, it generally fills from the front to the end, meaning if you just did the first half of the drive uses this actuator and the second half uses the second actuator, the second one's never going to have any work to do. And so trying to do it in a way that it would map to older file systems seemed difficult. Uh, And so sometimes they thought, you know, if we split the drive in half and expose it, as long as you make sure you don't, you know, mirror crop the two, two halves of the same drive, then in your, you know, some kind of RAID setup, it could make sense and give you the IOPS. I'm just surprised they didn't do a drive managed and say, oh, this looks like one single disk, but, you know, you feed us your queue of operations and, and we'll accomplish it with whichever actuator is more convenient. I, I think because of the way they're physically built, each actuator can only reach half the drive. Oh, okay. Somehow. I'm not entirely sure how it works. So I was assuming more like you've got one actuator on either side of the platter so that, you know, they're they're basically 180 degrees removed from each other at all times. But if you don't have the bit that you want at that moment, you know, wait a millisecond and it'll be under the head. That's kind of what I was expecting as well. I, I you know, I, I saw one short demo of it and that's that's all I've seen so far. I haven't managed to get my hands on one. They've tried building drives with multiple actuators like this before. And, you know, one of the one of the very basic engineering problems, like have you ever had like a Western Digital Velociraptor, the old uh, 10K RPM drives? Yeah, I had I had the one of the like 73 gigabyte ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things. It sounds sounds like a you know, freaking coffee grinder when those things are running, right? I mean, yep. it's a significant amount of vibration that you're adding to the environment every time that head slams, you know, from one position to the other on the disc. And if you've got two of them doing that, they're each jarring the other and you end up introducing so much more chaos into what's going on that you don't really get much actual benefit out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's more mechanical moving parts. So there's more to go wrong, right? That too. Well, yeah, that was the other interesting bit that there was being talked about a couple of years ago now. But, you know, apparently larger cloudish companies like Facebook and so on is like, yeah, if one of our platters dies, we'd like the disk to just be like, all right, you can't use that platter now, but keep working with the rest of the data. And it's like, how often does disk fail where it's only one platter that doesn't work? Uh, and, yeah. you know, what file system is really going to handle that? Well, I I can pretty easily see, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the file system so much as, you know, your multiple disk topology. That does Mm -hmm. seem like something that would be fairly easy to work around. It just strikes me as, you know, kind of trashy in the extreme to Mm -hmm. be like, you know, oh, no, the the rest of this disk is fine. It's like it's like eating around the rotten part, you know, the leftovers that came out of the fridge. No, man, throw that away. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of disks that are failing. There's a story from Hackaday that you found this week, Alan, about using DD Rescue. Yeah. So first thing, hope that you never need to use DD Rescue. Yeah. If, if you're having to use DD Rescue, you've done something wrong. Uh, well, you've done many things wrong. <laughs> you didn't have the right backups. You didn't have enough redundancy. Uh, and now you're trying to get this uh, disk that's falling apart to to give you your data. But sometimes it's 
what you got to do, I guess. Sometimes you inherit a client and that client didn't always make their decisions with you at their shoulder to guide them. Yeah. And, you know, uh, laptops don't fit that many discs to let you mirror stuff or whatever. Although I actually managed to find a, a 256 gigabyte uh, NVMe that fits in the 4G modem slot in my laptop so that I could mirror my disc. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So using DD Rescue, you can have it kind of read the disc multiple times and it can kind of get up to the part where the bad sector is and then skip ahead and then go back afterwards and kind of just inch its way back until it finds the bad sector and it will give you an image with just that dead sector in it. Yeah, it's it's the storage version of having a really intense, unpleasant argument with your spouse where you can only get so far before everything just breaks down and you, you got to stop for a while and everybody cool off. And then you can go back and you can, you know, maybe work around what you start off with. So in DD Rescue, that basically means that you're going to make one pass over the drive and get all the data you can as quick as you can. And there's going to be areas that, uh, you know, you can't read. You may even just come to a point where the disk overheats or whatever, and it stops responding entirely. But it might respond again if you give it some time to cool off. Yes, or put it in the freezer. Yeah, yeah. or you can try putting it in the freezer if you've got a stiction problem or, uh, you know, smack it gently with a mallet. <laughs> um, there, there's all this crazy stuff going on. But the important part from DD Rescue's point of view is it's, it's taking a pass and it's saving a state. It knows what sectors it's gotten and what sectors it hasn't gotten. So when you run it the second time, it's not going to try to read the ones that it already got an answer for. Now it's going to start trying to fill in those holes. And as it goes, um, you know, it will try smaller and smaller operations on the drive because sometimes you may not be able to successfully get a one meg operation to complete, but, you know, you can get a single 4K sector out. So DD Rescue will, you know, nibble around the edge of the holes and get as much of your data as it possibly can. But it's going to take a very very long time and be very, very fiddly. And if you're down to the point of having to use DD Rescue on a drive, you're probably not getting most of that data. Yeah, because uh, you can also run into problems where like trying to read a certain part of the drive makes the drive basically spend many minutes try retrying before it even returns a failure. Uh, and you can get, you know, basically make the drive go catatonic where you're going to have to start over and hopefully, you know, skip that part and go to the next one. Uh, but yeah, if if you're having to do this, You've, you've already, you know, failed to have backups and failed to have redundancy and, and, and failed to not use a disk that was starting to go bad. You know, we get questions all the time about people who are just like, well, I have these old disks and they're not great, but I can kind of use them. And it's like, no, you could, but it's, it's like Jim was saying earlier, when there's mold on your food, don't try to eat around it. All right. Uh, so another story that you wrote this week was about, the AMD Ryzen 4000 desktop APUs, which no one's going to be able to get their hands on unless they buy a pre-built machine, it looks like. Eventually, in theory, they'll be uh, they'll be open to the enthusiast market. But um, for the foreseeable future, only OEMs and system integrators are going to get them. And system integrators from AMD's perspective doesn't mean the same thing as it does from mine. Uh, I actually... I asked AMD what that meant, system integrator, because they never define the term. They just say it's only going to be available to OEMs and system integrators. They took a couple of days to finally get back to me. And when they did, their answer was basically an OEM is multinational and a system integrator is an OEM, but, you know, pretty much only in one country. So, you know, you're not talking about your local PC store. You know, you're 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 basically talking about 
It's going to be a real OEM, somebody who's buying, you know, chips in the in the thousands or the tens of thousands. And so these are AMD desktop CPUs with onboard graphics. Yeah, they are. Um, when AMD says APU, you know, that's that's what they mean by a CPU with integrated graphics. Um, the interesting thing is they are and they aren't desktop <laughs> processors. I mean, they 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 completely are, but their actual genesis is this is basically the Ryzen 4000 mobile CPUs, which are frankly fantastic, um, just scaled up into desktop size uh, frequency, thermal, and power budgets. And um, these are not going to be amazing to anybody who's you know already working with like a Ryzen 3000 desktop CPU. They perform very, very similarly. Uh, but it's it, it's pretty cool that for you know roughly the same price as you might spend on a Ryzen seven thirty seven hundred X, you can get a Ryzen seven uh, I think it's forty seven hundred G that is about the same you know TDP and uh, you know it's it's got eight Radeon cores as well as the the CPU. I would actually totally be in the target market for these things if they would sell them to me, but they're not going to sell them to me. So. Eh. They sure made you do some math, say, when it came to the uh, the benchmarks of these or what the expected benchmarks will be. Yeah, they did. Uh, I was very disappointed with them about that because, um, you know, for the last several product cycles that I've been doing CPU reviews for Ars Technica, um, Intel's press decks have, have been weaselly, to, to put it mildly. But, um, you know, AMD's press decks have been very open and straightforward and like, here's the numbers. And they give you these fantastic looking benchmarks and you have to tell your readers, you know, of course, we won't really know until people get our, you know, their hands on them. But then you get your hands on them and you run the benchmarks and, you know, hey, you you get these same numbers they did. This is good and it's good in all the ways they said it was. Um, you don't have to do any guesswork. Whereas with Intel, I've frequently had to do things like, you know, they say, oh, well, this is X percent better than Y. And, you know, now you got to go try to find like that benchmark for something that they said it was, you know, whatever percent better than that and compare it to it. It sucks. And that's exactly what AMD did this time with the APUs. Um, They did generation on generation comparisons, but the generation on generation was versus the last generation of APUs. And the last generation of APUs, you know, it wasn't the full product line. It didn't go any higher than Ryzen 5. So when they say something like, you know, oh, hey, you know, we've got 205%, you know, gen on gen, uh, you know, for our new Ryzen 7 4700G, well, that's really misleading because you're comparing it to a freaking Ryzen 5. With what, a quarter of the power budget or something? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the new ones, they, they, they have 18 models now with the, the new APU launch, but it's actually a lot simpler than it sounds. Um, it's five base models. Uh, all models have both a pro and a non pro variant and pro just pro for the most part means full memory encryption and, you know, the little corporate management features. And, um, all but the bottom end of them also have, uh, high TDP and low DP versions. And all the high TDP is 65 watt. All the low TDP is 35 watt. So it's a Ryzen 7, a Ryzen 5, a Ryzen 3, an Athlon Gold, and an Athlon Silver is really what it boils down to. I was speaking to a friend today about the 4000 series, uh, the laptop ones. And, he said to me that they're all fine and dandy if you just turn them on, use them for a few hours, turn them off. But if you are in an enterprise situation where they're left on for days and days and days, you end up getting weird crashes and something about the drivers not being good. Is that something you've ever experienced? It's not. Um, I haven't had my hands on 
tons of Ryzen 4000 laptops. I've I've only had two. I've got an Acer Swift 3 that's still on my bench that has a uh, it's got a, a Ryzen 7 4000 something or another and uh, the U series. And I also had an Asus Zephyrus G14 that had, you know, the big boy, the 4900HS, uh, you know, gaming CPU. But I mean, I, I've had both of them on and running benchmarks and doing stuff for, uh, you know, days and days on end. And I have not had any reliability problems out of either. Yeah, like the, that type of the, the problems you're describing sound a lot more like software drivers and less hardware. Yeah, but if the drivers aren't available for Linux, then it's not, you know, even with the latest drivers, if you're still having these issues, then what can you do apart from just use something else? Usually it's it's more with the ancillary hardware in the laptop than, you know, the, the APU itself, honestly. Um, like, for example, the, the Zephyrus G14 was a nightmare to try to work with under Linux because, but it's not because of the 4900HS, it's because that it, it also had a... Um, an NVIDIA RTX 2060, you know, mobile in it, uh, or GTA, I forget who's the the G or the R or whatever. But anyway, a, a 2060 mobile um, NVIDIA discrete GPU in it, as well as the onboard Radeon GPU. And Linux and hybrid GPUs and laptops don't really get along very well. So that was really the only thing I had problems with. Your solution is run Windows, eh, Alan? Not necessarily, but... Uh, well, it's certainly not run FreeBSD. <laughs> FreeBSD's got the same graphics drivers as Linux now. So, you know, if it'll work on Linux, it'll work on BSD. And if it won't... We, we already established it didn't work on Linux, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good luck. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to a bit of free consulting. If you want to get in touch with us, the best way is show at 2.5admins.com. Send us an email with your questions for Jim and Alan. And if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. The details for that are at 2.5admins.com. And thank you, everyone, who is supporting us. It is really appreciated. So Michael wrote in, if I find some useful utility online and it's not in a main repo, it's not in a PPA, it doesn't have an RPM, it's not in the AUR, and I need to do the holy trinity of configure, make, make, install... What's the best way to manage updates and or remove it without resorting to the type of manual seek and destroying that Jim had to do recently? Should I just package it myself? And he's referring to a post you put up on your personal site uh, when nothing else will remove a half-installed.deb package uh, where you had to go to quite some lengths. <laughs> that was, uh, I was quite wincing reading that. Yeah, that's unpleasant. Um, I mean, to be fair, that's not a situation that you're that you're going to have if you're working with unpackaged software because you you just RM it and you're done. Uh, the issue is that if you end up with a broken .deb package, getting rid of it and getting your package manager back into a usable state can be kind of a nightmare. It's not as simple as just delete something and go. Right. Well, I think the question is probably a bit more that you know your your typical make install is going to scattergun stuff all over the file system, and how do you actually clean it all up? Yeah. And I think the, the right answer to that is likely uh, to do something with the package because the, you know most package managers keep track of all the installs, uh, all the files that a package installs so that you can uninstall them. Uh, but really, uh, you know, there's a question of whether you should be using software that uh, is not ding, available ding, ding, in ding, the repo because like, how do you get it updated and how do you keep track of it? Every Linux distro is a bit different as far as the breadth of what's included in the packages. Uh, you know, I'm not that used to the, the Linux model of having a bunch of different repos and 
a bunch of different package managers like APM or RPM and AUR and so on. You know, the FreeBSD package repo has 30,000 something apps in it, but when something's not in there, it's either add it or find something else usually because uh, just scattergunning stuff all over your file system is weird. And more importantly, it's not reproducible, right? The, the thing we try to tell people about being able to manage your server is you have to be able to redo anything you did. There's, there's, there's a couple of different answers here, honestly. It depends on what kind of software we're talking about. Um, you know, if you're talking about a simple and fairly self-contained piece of software that basically just, you know, runs directly out of one executable, that's a whole different story from something that, you know, wants to spew libraries over, you know, five different directories on your system. And you have, if, if you're doing that, you know, from a cowboy compile, you know, dot slash configure, uh, make, make install, you actually have more problems than just how do I update it? You also have to ask yourself the question, is this going to overwrite a system library that my actual package manager has been managing? Which means at this point, you've committed yourself either to one, actually reading through the make file and figuring out all the things that, you know, this build process does, or, you know, just YOLO swag, jump off the cliff and see what happens, which obviously I don't recommend the latter. Um, I don't recommend the former either because the odds are real good. You don't need that thing that bad. There's an, there's so much well-packaged open source software out there in proper repositories that there's just honestly not that much need to go that far off the reservation. You know, if you really need it that badly, then yeah, if it's not already packaged, then you should probably take on that job and package it, which again means you need to understand all the things that it's doing as you build that package. And now, you know, you've taken that thing on. It's your baby. Are you ready for another baby? If you're not ready for another baby, don't do that. What if you package it as a snap? Well, if you package it as a snap, then, you know, now you're saying, well, okay, uh, I know I can take away all the things that it dropped. And I know that all the things that it dropped won't interfere with the rest of my system. But as far as the rest of the quality of it, who knows? And, you know, in theory, who cares? Because it's, you know, all in this little container. And that's sort of fine as long as you're not worried about security problems caused by the fact that now you have you know, 20 different versions of libfoo in 20 different containers on your system. And when one exploit in libfoo comes out, now you have to worry about patching it in 20 different places, which may or may not happen. Yeah. And like uh, on FreeBSD, the package manager has an audit tool that will actually compare the installed packages you have against the list of known vulnerabilities and be like, hey, these three things you really need to update because there are known vulnerabilities. If you have software you install that's not through the package manager, it doesn't know it's there and doesn't tell you, hey, you really need to update that. Uh, and you know, you're, you think you're installing your updates because you ran your package manager update and you updated everything except for that one runt piece of software that's not in the package manager. Alan, I don't know the answer to this one, but, you know, in a FreeBSD system, if you cowboy compile uh, something and let's say that, you know, you've got libfoo that's been installed from packages as a dependency of, you know, something you've installed the proper way, but maybe that's in user local bin. And now you run this cowboy compiled thing and it drops libfoo in user bin. Will the audit even figure that out? And the fact that, you know, it's higher up in the path and it's going to end up getting used by things that maybe it shouldn't? Uh, probably not, actually. That's, that's a good point. Uh, cause the other thing I was going to mention is if, if you do need to do something like this, uh, almost every configure script, all the, you know, automake ones and so on support dash dash prefix equals so that all the paths it installs to get a prefix. And, and so FreeBSD uses that so that every package you install that isn't part of FreeBSD itself 
and is under user local something so that your operating system and your, your packages are separate. Uh, you could do the same thing and, uh, with your custom compiled software and put it under, you know, user custom or something and then add it to your path. And that way, you know, all the custom stuff is definitely off in the side directory and I can always clean it up nicely or whatever. Uh, but yeah, if something just randomly sticks a library somewhere where it's not expected to be, that can be a problem. If it overwrote the correct library, then there's a package manager command package check that will be like, hey, the checksum of that file is wrong. Would you like me to reinstall the package for you? But yeah, if it just stuck an old version of OpenSSL in the wrong place uh, so that everything started using that instead, that could cause all kinds of havoc. So in conclusion, don't use something else that's in a repo. Yeah, or make a package. Uh, you know, a lot. Oftentimes making a package is pretty simple. I, I don't know the details on most Linuxes, but on BSD, it's like, here's the GitHub repo, here's the hash, uh, it uses automake, and put the files over here. Uh, you know, you write a short text file that describes it, and then now you can have packages. I'm not going to lie, making a deb is way more complex than it ought to be. Um, I've done it, but it's one of those things, it's complicated enough that if you're not doing it like once a week, you're going to forget, yeah. and it's not intuitive, and you're not going to remember when you go try to do it again. You're telling me you haven't got documentation for it? That's the problem. There's like, you know, 500 different, you know, sets of documentation telling you how to make a dib, and some of them assume that you're working with, you know, Launchpad on Ubuntu, and some of them assume that you're working in plain Debian, and some assume this, and some assume the other, and they all conflict and, you know, tell you different things. And even more frustrating, you know, if you're somebody like me and, you know, you're building software in a relatively high level language that doesn't even need compilation, like here is a script it needs to execute. Here is a config file. It should go in a directory and et cetera. That should be really, really easy to package. It isn't because these package systems assume that they're going to be compiling, you know, C software and everything about that system is set up around that incorrect assumption. It's a giant pain in the butt. Yeah, the BSD one's a bit easier, but you're literally using make files to do everything. Like make files that download things for you and make files that run the configure script and manage all the patches. And, and yeah, if you're not that familiar with make files, it gets uh, a little, the water gets deep real quick. Well, I'm going to channel Popey, who calls the show 2.05 admins. <laughs> he would say it's much easier to make a snap and you should look into that. I have looked into it and no, it's really not much easier. All right, fair enough. The nice thing about uh, the way FreeBSD packages are built is you build, you make the, the manifest for it and so on, but the building happens centrally and each package is built in a clean environment with no other files around. Uh, and so it's, you know, each package works as if it was something like a snap, but you can just install a bunch of them uh, on your system. But you make sure that you don't get any weird contamination from other things that might have been installed in the system where you were trying to package it. Fair enough. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to get in touch. We'll be back in a couple of weeks then. Until then, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. See you in two weeks.